This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Pastor Will Chester and is from the first Sunday after Christmas, 2017. Uh, well, good morning. My name is Will Chester, and I'm the youth pastor here at Church of the Resurrection, which is a, a wonderful privilege. Um, one of the things I love about Church of the Resurrection is that we're Anglican, and so we, we practice the church calendar, which means we are only seven days into a 12-day celebration of Christmas, which means there are five more days of Christmas, which means you don't have to stop eating Christmas cookies for five more days. You don't have to begin your New Year's resolutions yet because, I mean, come on, who cares about the new year? We're in this for Christmas. So continue celebrating Christmas for five more days, eating lots of cookies and, and celebrating. Though maybe take down your tree because it's, it's becoming a fire hazard. Um, well, some of you know, my wife Emma gave birth uh, to our firstborn son this year, Gabriel. And so this year has been, been full of firsts for us. And she, she texts me every time he... He does even like the most minor thing that he hasn't done before. So like the first time he like starts making eye contact regularly, you know, we're, we're celebrating it. And the first time he's like lifting his head, you know, off of the ground, we're, we're celebrating it joyfully. And, and all of this kind of culminated in, uh, in this book that we made for him. Uh, well, really for the grandparents this Christmas. We had a, a photographer come to our house and we took pictures of Gabriel, and now we have like this 30-page book, Gabriel. <laughs> and we gave it to the grandparents, and we kept one for ourselves, and it's beautiful, and has all these fun pictures. And, and the other day, I was showing this to some of, uh, some of my students who are at my house, some of my students who are not the firstborn child in their family. <laughs> and they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, my, my sister has one of these. <laughs> you know, my, my, my brother has one of these. It's, this is like a phenomena, right? Like what you do for the first child is different than what you do for the others. You know, the, the first child gets this big book. The second child might get a picture on the wall. And if you have third and fourth children, you just, you don't even take pictures anymore. And by the time you get to six and seven, you don't even remember their names. It's, it's, just, it's just different what you do for the firstborn son or the, or the firstborn daughter. And so if that's true for us, coincidentally, more than anything... It is far more true for the Hebrews and the, the people from whom we've received our scripture and the, and the people to whom our Savior Jesus came. And the firstborn son, that was a big deal in Hebrew culture. And one scholar says, you can think of it like this, the firstborn is the family. All of the hopes and dreams and aspirations of the family get funneled through that firstborn son. And so, I mean, they're the... Um, they get to sit at the place of honor at the table, and the siblings are expected to follow their instruction because that firstborn son has received that family instruction from his father. And so some of the youth are thinking like, oh, this is a pretty good deal. I think we ought to be a little bit more biblical in our family. You know, the firstborn child, I should get to tell my brothers and sisters what to do. And this all, this all kind of culminated in, in inheritance rights. So if you were the firstborn son in the family, you inherited 50% of your father's wealth, 50% of the family business, 50% of the cattle, 50% of the property. And so it didn't matter if you had, you know, four or five other brothers, you got 50 and they split the rest. All of the blessing of the family was seen to flow through the firstborn son. Okay, so why do I bring this up? 
because you have to understand this, this whole weightiness of the firstborn son if you want to understand the Bible and how much drama there is around the firstborn son and how so-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so. And moreover, you have to understand the concept of the firstborn son if you want to understand our passage this morning. Because this ritual that's done in Luke chapter 2 that Mary and Joseph follow, this is something that's only done for the firstborn son. And so this morning, I just want to take kind of a, a deep dive into just the first few verses in this story, looking at why is Jesus in the temple to begin with, and what does that say for you and me today? So, so turn with me to Luke chapter 2, verse 22 to 24. When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to the temple, or up to Jerusalem, to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So there's two things happening here. The first thing is, is purification. So after a woman would give birth, it was expected that a, a month after giving birth to her son, she would go and, and perform a sacrifice um, for the purification of, of the family. And so that's the first thing that's happening, and that's, that's what these pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons is all about. That's why Mary and Joseph are there. But the reason why Jesus is there is that they need to present him to the Lord. This is only done for firstborn sons. So why is this done for firstborn sons? And the first reason is gratitude. Gratitude to the Lord. So the Lord, in the Hebrew understanding, the Lord gets the first of everything. He gets the first fruits of the harvest. And so the harvest comes in, and the Lord gets the top 10%. The first 10% goes back to God as an act of submission and gratitude for giving the harvest in the first place. And in the springtime, when the, when the ewes would give birth to, to lambs, the first lamb born to a particular ewe would be sacrificed to the Lord, would be given to him as a sign of submission, as a sign of gratitude to the Lord. Well, so then what do you do for things that, that you can't or, or shouldn't sacrifice, like your firstborn son? you'd go to the temple and you'd redeem him. So the, the Lord still had a claim on your firstborn son, and so you'd have to, you'd have to provide a, some kind of payment to order to redeem your son for your family in place of sacrificing him. And so this is kind of the other side. I mean, you know, firstborn son, that sounded like a pretty good deal. You get, you get the inheritance. But there's another side to it as well. Because... Not only on the firstborn's shoulders was the prosperity of the family, but also the debt of sin of the family. So remember the Passover. That's where this comes from. In the Passover, the, the people of Israel are stuck in slavery, and God is determined to free them from slavery. And so he sends these, these nine plagues so that the Egyptians would free his people. And after nine plagues, they still haven't freed them. And so God says on the tenth plague, they're going to free them. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to cast judgment over the whole land of Egypt. And all of the firstborn there will be under this judgment. All of the firstborn will die. And notice that the Hebrews aren't exempted from that judgment. Hebrews aren't exempted. The only difference between the Hebrews and the Egyptians is that a substitute is provided in place of the Hebrew firstborn sons. And so in the Passover meal... God tells all of the families to sacrifice a lamb, to sacrifice a lamb instead of the firstborn son. 
instead of God taking the firstborn from every family. And so every firstborn sitting at the table that night looks at the lamb and knows that the lamb is dead because they are not. They're alive because the lamb is not. Because the debt of sin weighs upon the firstborn's shoulders as well. And so as we're thinking about this this concept of, of a lamb taking the place of the firstborn son's life, that should recall to our minds an earlier story of Abraham and Isaac. So remember that God has promised to Abraham all, all the blessing of the nations is going to flow through you. Your grandchildren and their grandchildren, their grandchildren are, be, are going to become as numerous as the sands on the seashore and the stars in the sky. And it's all going to flow through your firstborn son to Sarah, Isaac. And then God tells Abraham to do something strange. When Isaac is a boy, he tells Abraham to bring your son up to the mountaintop and offer him as a sacrifice. And the, the, the paradoxical nature of this isn't lost on Abraham. I mean, he knows that on the one hand, God has given him this promise that'll flow through Isaac. But on the other hand, he knows that God has a legitimate claim upon his firstborn son, that the debt of sin of the family rests on the firstborn child. And so you know how this works. Abraham goes up to the mountaintop, and at the critical moment, with knife raised in the air, the Lord speaks to Abraham through an angel and tells him to stop. And notice what he says. He doesn't say, stop, you've you've passed the test, or stop, we, we totally miscommunicated about this. He says, stop, I've provided a substitute instead. And he points to a, to a ram caught in the bushes with its, with its horns in the bushes, this, this symbol of being cursed. Cursed is everyone who, who hangs from a tree. He points to the ram and says, the curse, the judgment will fall on the ram, not on your firstborn son. And so from Abraham and Isaac, through the Passover, and into the, the day in which Jesus is living, there is this idea in the Hebrew mind that our firstborn sons, they, they belong to the Lord. There's a debt of sin that weighs upon their shoulders. This, this paradoxical reality that at, at the same time that they carry promise and blessing and hope for the future, they also carry the weight of curse and judgment. And every time, every time a Hebrew son is born and they're brought before the Lord, they're brought to remember this, that their deliverance comes through the sacrifice of the firstborn son. And yet over and over and over, God says, but I won't make you, I won't make, you make that sacrifice. I'll provide a substitute instead. So why would God do this? Why, why would he put this kind of paradoxical conundrum in, in the Hebrew minds in the first place? And it's because all of it, Abraham and Isaac, the Passover, all of it points to Jesus. In fact, all of it is pointing to what we have here in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 2. Because when Jesus is brought to the temple, when Jesus is offered to the Lord, we know that in the whole context of Luke's gospel that, that there was to be no substitute for Jesus. There was no redemption. There was no buying him back. He was presented to the Lord as the one Hebrew son who would bear the weight of his family's guilt. The one Hebrew son who would not be passed over. From the very beginning, Jesus was the firstborn son to be the firstborn son who bore the full 
weight of his family's guilt. Can you sense the irony here? I mean, as Paul says, Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Not in the sense that that he was born at one time, because we know he was eternally begotten of the Father. There's never been a time where the Son hasn't existed. So it's not in the sense that he was born. He's the firstborn over all creation in the sense that all creation belongs to him. Everything that belongs to the Father is given to the Son. In fact, the, the Father's work, the family business of creating and sustaining and redeeming the world, that's the Son's work of creating and sustaining and redeeming the world. All of the Father's words, the wisdom that he's given the Son is what the Son then gives to us. He is the firstborn Son of God, heir of everything. So why would he be offered to the Lord when he already belongs to the Lord? And why would Jesus be offered to the Lord when he bears no family guilt in his body? Why would he be the one Hebrew son who is not redeemed. Because when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. Because the only son of God didn't want to be an only child. The only begotten Son of God wanted to be the firstborn among many. He wanted his Father to become our Father. And that was his purpose from the very beginning as a one-month-old child brought to the Lord. I mean, it's beautiful and, and wonderful enough that God would forgive us our sins. It is beautiful and and wonderful enough that God would give us a substitute, something to stand in our place for the guilt that we bear as sons and daughters and brothers and sisters, mothers, fathers, neighbors, citizens in this world. It's good enough that God would provide a substitute for us to forgive us. But that's not the gospel. That's not the fullness of the gospel. Because the good news of the gospel is that you are in the family. The good news of the gospel is that forgiveness comes to you because Christ, your brother, has borne your family guilt. And in receiving Christ through faith and baptism, you have been united to him. And his father has become your father. This is the truth of adoption. Look at Romans 8.29 in your bulletins. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that his son might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. The firstborn among many This theological concept of adoption, it's not some like minor theme in Paul's understanding of Christ's work on our behalf. It shows up in Galatians, it shows up in Ephesians, it shows up in Romans. For Paul, this is the gospel. It's not hallmark fluff to to encourage weak-minded people. It's the gospel. It's meant to encourage weak-hearted people like us who don't know how desperately we need this to be true. 
We are, we are not orphans in this universe. We are not some tiny speck of dust here today and gone tomorrow and then lost in the cosmos forever. We are beloved children of God with Christ our brother in the unity of the Holy Spirit. And we are heirs of everything that has been given to Christ. And the most precious of all of those gifts given to Christ by his Father is that intimate embrace that Jesus enjoys in the triune love of God. An unreserved intimacy with God the Father is your inheritance, is our inheritance through the work of Christ our brother. And so let me just close with, with three points about, about this concept of adoption, about this gospel of adoption. First, adoption is a doctrine for your heart and not just your mind. And I think that's, that's especially important to say in a community like ours where so many of us are so well-educated, where so many of us are so well-versed in using our intellect as a way to keep God at bay, a way to keep God as an abstract concept that we can kind of talk about and apply in different ways, but that doesn't, that doesn't reach the seat of our desires and ambitions and hopes and dreams, the seat of our decision-making, the seat of our pain and our shame. Adoption is for your heart, not just your mind. And the Lord wants a unity for your heart and mind in this truth. And J.I. Packer says this in Knowing God. He says, if you want to know how well someone understands the Christian faith, find out how much they make at the thought of being God's child, how much that thought controls your worship and your prayer and indeed your whole outlook on life. Because if it doesn't, if adoption isn't at the heart of even your being and the way you operate in this world, then you're missing out on the fullness of the gospel. Jesus came that we might call God Abba, this Aramaic word, this word that's not part of the Greek language that Paul's writing in. And in Romans, Paul uses this word Abba like he does in Galatians to say this is the word that Christ gave us to call God. You know God as Father because you know his Son. Otherwise, he might be an abstract entity, but you know God as Father, and you can know God as Father in your heart of hearts because of the Son, Christ, your brother. Adoption is for your heart, not just for your mind. But of course, that's, it's difficult to get there. We can't force it on our own. And it's good, it's good news that Paul knows that. Romans 8.16, he says, the Spirit testifies to this truth. Romans 8.16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If Christ is our brother and God is our father, then the Spirit is here as our advocate reminding us of the truth that's written on our birth certificate. You belong to the Father. You belong to the triune family of God. A friend of mine adopted an 11-year-old boy about four or five years ago, and he, and he quickly began to see that, that this was his work in fathering his son, his adopted son, was, was reminding him 
his son, whether, whether his son had done something good or, or whether he had misbehaved, reminding him that you're in the family. That's not going to change. Because for so many years, his son had had this insecurity. Am I going to be here forever? Am I going to be in this home for long? Can I really put down roots here? Can I really put down roots in my heart with this, my family? And so in, in both discipline and in praise, my friend is reminding his son, you're not going anywhere. You belong to the family. You are my son. The way that you became my son is not nearly as important as the fact that you are my son. And this is the same testifying work that the Spirit does on our behalf, testifying to our hearts when our hearts are weak. You belong to the Father. You belong to the family of God. And thirdly, the Father's love for Christ is the Father's love for you. And it sounds, I mean, when I say that, it almost sounds wrong. It almost sounds heretical to say that. That the Father's love for me would be the same as his love for his eternal and only begotten, an eternally begotten son. And the mystery of the gospel is yes, that's true. If you want to know how the Father feels towards you, how the, the Father's affections are stirred towards you, read the Gospel of John, read Paul, read all the Gospels. Read of the Father's love for Christ because joined to Christ in union with him, having become his younger brother or sister with your guilt upon his shoulders, having had all that happen, you have become a son, you have become a daughter of the Lord God. And this is good news. It is our union with Christ that makes us bold to say with Paul, I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the gospel. This is the fullness of the good news. Forgiveness comes because you are in the family. And that will never change. Christ was presented in order to be our firstborn brother who would bear our guilt upon his shoulders so that his father would become our father. And this morning, he invites us to remember this truth as we proclaim the creed we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty. He invites us to remember this truth as we come to him boldly with our sins and confession, not hiding anything because we have the trust and security that comes from knowing that we're in the family. He invites us to remember this as we pray to God, our Father, as Christ has taught us to pray. And he invites us to remember this at the table at the Father's table where you and I freely come to eat and remember the Son's Passover sacrifice on our behalf. So this morning, this Christmas morning, let us continue our celebration. Let us worship the Father through the gift of the Son and the unity of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. 
As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.